A number of years ago, there was a phenomenon called the IDW, or the Intellectual Dark Web. And this was a group of uh, academics and writers and public intellectuals who were challenging the woke orthodoxy. They were raising the alarm about problems in academia. Uh, and they were really the first core set of people to challenge what we're seeing now as BLM ideology, as radical gender theory, uh, and, and as progressive governance of America's cities. And uh, I, like many people, was fascinated by this development. Uh, I liked many of the voices that were there. You know, you had Dave Rubin was kind of a central organizing point with his Rubin report. You had people like Jordan Peterson, the, the Weinstein brothers, Sam Harris, uh, Quillette Magazine, and a number of other people who had all uh, um, I think very bravely and courageously at the time, uh, challenged what was happening in America's institutions and really especially drove some serious attention to institutional problems, say for example, in academia. But if we fast forward now a number of years, uh, I think we have to make the argument that the IDW is a spent force. Um, in some ways, like uh, President Trump, it served an initial purpose to shake up the status quo. Uh, but in the case of the IDW, I'm going to argue that it was unable to offer a solution and in fact, unable to even arrive at the necessity of a solution itself. And so you have a scattering. I think even a lot of the people, and I know I've talked about this with some of them, uh, 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 would say that the IDW has scattered. People have gone in different directions. It's not a coherent intellectual force uh, as it once was. And uh, I think that if you look at it, there's a couple reasons for this, but it starts with the sequence of events over the last few years since this group rose to prominence. Uh, and I think there are really three key decision points um, that started this splintering that started this uh, uh, decomposition of the group that re revealed that it wasn't an uh, intellectually coherent group, but actually kind of an alliance of convenience against an orthodoxy, but not for a replacement or a substitution to that orthodoxy. The first was Trump. Look, a, a lot of the people in the IDW, the more centrist types, were horrified by President Trump. They didn't want to get anywhere near him. Uh, they thought that he was a kind of incarnation of evil and anti-intellectualism, uh, corruption, and, uh, you know, a, a really distasteful skin coloration. The most famous, of course, is Sam Harris, who uh, uh, basically tapped out at Trump and said, if, if anyone is going in the direction of Trump, uh, I'm going the total opposite direction. And this became a process over a couple years that I think uh, was the first of many divisions. And, you know, I, I, I like Sam Harris. I, I think he's a, a brilliant guy. I think he's uh, uh, insightful in many regards. But this was really the first step out of the politics of the moment, saying, nope, I'm out. I'm tapped out on this. The second was COVID and the cluster of issues surrounding the COVID pandemic, whether it was the initial lockdowns or the vaccines or the mandates and other government regulations in schools and workplaces and other institutions. Uh, you had the kind of Quillette magazine crew, uh, Claire Lehman. Um, they tapped out at this point. They said, um, you know, we are, we are going all in with the lockdown orthodoxy and we're not going along with the kind of troglodyte Republicans or Governor DeSantis who want to keep their states open. We're with the scientific and technocratic uh, experts who turned out not to be such great experts after all. Um, and so they tapped out. 
they said, okay, this is the next splintering. The IDW now is splintering on those issues. And then the third, the one that I'm most familiar with, and I think is really in some ways uh, the most decisive, is the cluster of issues around critical race theory and so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. And this is when you had really the, I think, key decision moment uh, where you had all of the centrist types tap out, hit the button, nope, we're gone. We think CRT is a problem. Uh, we oppose coercive DEI bureaucracies, but we are unwilling to go along with Republican politicians who want to do something about it, who want to use democratic power to restrict critical race theory, to restrict DEI bureaucracies in K through 12 schools and public universities. So at the end of these three decision points, you're left with very few people still standing. You have a splintering, you have a decomposition, you have in really, honestly, a collapse of this movement as a coherent uh, ideological force, intellectual force, and certainly political force. Um, and if you look at what's underneath all of these three decision points, um, I think there's a single theme that caused, that was the initial and primary cause of this decay, of this idea, of this movement. Um, it's that the IDW's value proposition was that it offered a critique. And I'll be the first to say it was a brave critique, a brilliant critique, and a necessary critique. But the IDW wanted to remain in the mode of criticism in perpetuity. Um, it had a very clear idea of what they were against, but could never rally around a coherent agenda on what they were for. And as those decisions started to become uh, imposed from the outside because of these uh, external circumstances, Trump, COVID, CRT, DEI, they were forced to make decisions and then all of those people who tapped out said no. As this comes beyond critique and demands our political action, we are out. In my view, we are abdicating. Um, we are unwilling to move into a political arena outside the confines of the intellectual arena where our critique is our key value proposition. And so what happens is that over this, you know, four or five years, events surpassed the IDW. And it turned the IDW into a spent political force. When the world moved beyond critique and accepted the critique, I mean, look, even the New York Times has absorbed the initial critique of the IDW into its op-ed pages. You see very uh, IDW-style critiques getting published in the New York Times all the time now. They aren't new, they aren't fresh, they aren't transgressive, they aren't dangerous opinions to hold. And so you have a necessity to then go beyond critique into the realm of action. And my question to centrists has been and remains to this day, what is your theory of change? What is your model for solving the problems that you yourself have identified? And I think there are two key problems or two key barriers for the centrist types, maybe let's say kind of vaguely IDW types, uh, to, to get beyond that question, to answer that question sufficiently. The first is that these are ultimately political problems. These are ultimately political problems. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that uh, a podcast, uh, even a brilliant argument sustained over a number of years about the evils of critical race theory, for example, 
the intellectual limitations of critical race theory, even um, the, the, the kind of fraud of critical race theory as an ideology, will not change the K through 12 curriculum in a public school system. And so you can't merely criticize it. You actually have to use political power to change existing state curricula, to modify the current status quo in order to say, in our public schools, which are funded by taxpayers and ultimately uh, uh, subject to the uh, will of taxpayers through their elected authorities, we're gonna change it. We're gonna say that these ideas are better than these other ideas. Let's say uh, the ideas uh, of the American founding are better than the ideas of uh, critical race theory. And we're going to then say that this is what we're going to transmit in within public schools. The IDW people said, no, we're unwilling to do that. We're unwilling to uh, use political power to regulate the state. And my argument is that in a sense, what they're saying is that the people have no right to regulate their own government. I mean, it, it, verter, it verges on the border of, of an absurdity, a kind of, kind of uh, uh, tautological untruth. Um, uh, it, it actually, by deferring or abdicating the responsibility of governing, um, you're delegating authority to unelected bureaucracies that want to push critical race theory into the classroom, for example, with no consent of the governed. And so at the end of the day, um, there is a legislative and public and political question that must be answered. And not answering that question is not taking a moral high ground. It's abdicating responsibility and leaving those, those questions to unelected, anti-democratic bureaucracies that have been captured by left-wing ideologues who are pushing the ideology that the IDW, in theory, opposes on intellectual grounds. So there is a deep problem there uh, that I don't think has been grappled with sufficiently. And the second problem, this is really emerges from the first problem, is the problem that was outlined as Duverger's law. This is a political theory that says in a first-past-the-post majoritarian electoral system like we have in the United States, it tends to almost in, in kind of it necessitates a two-party political system. And so if Duverger's law holds, I think that it does, the evidence suggests that it does, we are going to have a two-party political system for the foreseeable future. Um, we've had, in essence, a two-party political system with some incursions uh, in the last 250 years, uh, most recently with you know, Ross Perot in, in 1992, but, but really we have a stable two-party political system and one of these two majority parties absorbs in a third-party challenge and, and siphons or co-ops the voters and the ideas. We saw that in 92, I think we'd see that uh, anytime in the future. And so then the, the, the real specific political question, not abstractly, criticism versus action, but the real specific political question is saying, if there is a necessity of political action, A. B, what does the field of political action look like? Well, because of Duverger's law, because of the historical reality of the last 250 years of the United States, it looks like choosing one of two political parties as your vehicle for political change uh, and as a necessary uh, uh, operator in your theory of social, intellectual, cultural, and political change. So your model of change has to grapple with uh, this two-party political system that we have. And here I think that the centrist IDW types, again, abdicate all responsibility. Someone whom I admire, like John McWhorter, uh, wrote a great book about woke racism. 
The premise of the book is that left-wing racialist ideology is a threat to the country. It's a threat to not only the country as a whole, but a threat to all of the individual uh, 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 racial and ethnic groups in the country. It is a kind of cancer to um, intellectual rigor, to progress, to good governance. Well, if that is your premise, your conclusion should be, uh, how can we change this? How can we defeat this? How can we have public policy that doesn't adopt these as the new governing principles of our country? Look, the political left is not gonna do that. The political left for the foreseeable future is captured by its vanguardist faction. Um, their default ideology, their governing philosophy is critical race theory. It is DEI bureaucracy. Even for someone like Joe Biden, who is a more old school, backslapping, you know, quasi moderately imaged uh, uh, presidential uh, uh, candidate at the time, he's nationalized the DEI bureaucracy. This is the governing philosophy of the Democratic Party and of, of the organized left. And yet someone like John McWhorter prides himself and will say on, in, in, in media interviews, I've never voted Republican, I would never vote Republican. Okay, well, again, what is your theory of change in a two-party political system? If you would categorically never vote for Republicans who oppose woke racism, who oppose critical race theory, who oppose DEI bureaucracies, how are you gonna get the political left that has made its, kind of staked its fortune on those concepts and operationalized them through every facet of government that it controls, how are they gonna walk it back? How are you gonna persuade that political, organized political faction to defeat woke racism? Um, you're not. That's actually kind of the spoiler to the question. You're not gonna do it. That's an impossibility. And again, what you see over and over and over, a initial tapping out when the political question is raised, uh, an initial tapping out when you have to actually make a decision, external circumstances are forcing a decision point, and then tapping out when you have to grapple with the fact that we have a two-party political system, one party is all in on this, one party is against it, and, and even saying, look, the conservative party is not perfect, um, it's not ideal, it doesn't line up 100%, um, but even in those circumstances, there's a clear answer that the fortune and the theory of change that has a possibility of victory has to go through a majority conservative party. And then just saying, I will not do that, I'm tapping out, I won't choose. Because choosing is uncomfortable, because choosing is distasteful, because again, there is a kind of lurking figure with, a, 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 with an ugly uh, orange-hued uh, skin tone that, that I just can't for uh, aesthetic reasons or political reasons or reasons of conscience even contemplate aligning myself with. And so what do you have at the end? You have a force that is spent. You have a movement that is incoherent. And then you have a political theory that no longer has a plausible claim on reality. And let me be the first to say too, there are exceptions. I think uh, uh, Dave Rubin has been someone who understands the political question and has been willing to not tap out, but actually to opt in to all of those hard decisions and move forward in a way that is actually uh, likely to succeed, that is consonant with reality, that deals with these difficult political questions and says, you know what, let's move forward towards an answer. Jordan Peterson, uh, with whom I had a, uh, a nice uh, dinner exchange a few weeks ago, a, a great podcast conversation about this very question, he's also moving towards this realization that, you know what, 
I know how bad academia is. I know how bad kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology is. I know historically what collectivism as a governing principle looks like. Uh, it looks like very, very ugly uh, uh, outcomes. And he's edging towards uh, a, a kind of bridging of the gap between pure philosophical wisdom and then practical wisdom or prudential wisdom uh, or statesmanship. I think he's getting there. Um, and then I think the uh, uh, Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying, um, uh, I, I courageously, whether you agree with them or not, and I don't know all their positions on it, but they courageously said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to tap in to this debate on COVID and say, we dissent from the orthodoxy. We dissent from Fauci. We dissent from this scientific consensus that we have to lock our country down, that we have to uh, mandate vaccines uh, uh, across the board, um, and that we have to take away the free choice of individuals uh, and, and delegate the authority to unelected bureaucracies in the CDC, uh, in Twitter and, and, and elsewhere suppressing information. They took real political risks. Um, they did the kind of brave thing at the time to just say, right or wrong, we're going to go with our best judgment. We're staking a claim. There are some others, I think, that have also done this. So it's not a categorical condemnation. I, I don't even think the IDW is, is bad, per se. I think it was actually a really um, necessary and healthy corrective at the time, but one that has splintered to the extent that, uh, to such an extent that it no longer can serve a practical political function. And so to, to, to conclude the argument, I think we have to then answer those questions. This is a political problem. We have a two-party system according to Duverger's law, and we have to decide. It doesn't mean you have to give your unconditional loyalty to one political party or the other. It doesn't mean that you have to uh, uh, blindly follow the political leaders of our time. It doesn't mean that you cannot also offer um, uh, uh, caveats and critiques and warnings something that I think Jordan Peterson has done very brilliantly and very responsibly. But I think it does mean that the conservative party in the United States is the only reasonable path to having a governing majority, to having legislative power, and to answering political questions as our founding fathers and our constitutions intended, which is through the political process. We live in a republic, we elect our legislators, and questions of public importance are answered through that democratic process. Libertarians may not like that. They may believe in some sort of fanciful utopia in which we're all uh, living on, uh, you know, communes and, and downloading, you know, Bitcoin ledgers and, and, and living in a kind of anarchist utopia where we all make individual decisions and we log them on the blockchain. But that's not the reality. We have K-12 public schools. We have public universities. We have government with extraordinary bureaucratic and political power. And so do not abdicate answer these hard questions, learn the lessons of how to move beyond the realm of critique into the realm of concrete action. That's where the fight is. That's where the fight is going. And we're going to see people who are tapping out, tapping out, tapping out, and we're going to leave them behind. Because we believe, I think the movement that is generating the most potential for securing the liberty and freedom of the American people over and against these nihilistic left-wing racial philosophies and gender philosophies that seek to divide us into categories, call us oppressor and oppressed, and shred the Constitution altogether, require that we take action. And the courageous and the brave are going to be the ones that are leading this country into the future. 
And so I hope you consider us. This is an open invitation to IDW style figures to join us. Um, but if you're unwilling to make the hard decisions, you're gonna be left behind.